We're in Acts chapter 2. Um, it's hard, you know, it's been two weeks since we met, so it's hard to just jump into the middle of something like this, uh, especially in these early chapters of Acts. I want to remind you of just a couple of quick things. If you haven't been here for a while or just to refresh your memory, book of Acts is a book of transition. If there is one, um, let's use a very important word, one proposition (laughs) that you need to keep in the forefront as you read and study and as we talk about the book of Acts, it's just to remember that. It is a transition from the old covenant to the new covenant. It's a transition from the fulfillment of the old order and the beginning of the new order. It is the end of the Mosaic covenant and the beginning of the new covenant. Now, I said the same thing three different ways. But, and I don't think any of it is particularly new to you, but it's just keep that in your mind because at some point there, there are going to be some strange things that happen. They're going to say things like, we know the baptism of John, but we don't know the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Why? What does that mean? Well, because of the transition between the old and the new. And so just kind of keep that. Secondly, is remember Acts 1.8. Jesus is about to go back to the Father. He's completed his redemptive work. And he says, I want you to be my witnesses. And he gives them the strategic plan. In Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And you can outline the book of Acts based on that structure. And so what we're seeing in chapter 2, which again, we're just getting started with that, is the beginning of the most important sign of the new covenant, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit. And the coming of the Holy Spirit, and I'm talking about the demonstrable space-time historic act of the Holy Spirit coming as a part of the fulfillment of the new covenant. Now, now does that sentence all make sense to you? I mean, that sentence that I just uttered, does that make sense to you? Because, I mean, that's, it's, it's just kind of, that's what's going on here. This is a singular event. It's never repeated again, and it never will be repeated again. The Holy Spirit coming, forming the church, indwelling the church, the beginning of the new covenant, uh, completing of the inauguration of the new covenant. Okay, now, there are just a bunch of introductory statements and sentences and reminders and so on. So it's okay? You with me? All right? So, again, let's just sort of pick up. Uh, We did study this, but I'm just going to quickly read this. When the day of Pentecost arrived, remember, Pentecost is uh, an agricultural holiday, feast day in in the Jewish calendar. And it's 50 days after Yom Kippur, 50 days after uh, Passover, excuse me. And so uh, Penta means 50. So it's 50 days. It would be 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion. Right, Woody? So Pentecost is not named Pentecost because that's when the Holy Spirit came. Well, yeah, that's right. Pentecost is a Jewish agricultural festival, but it is when the Holy Spirit comes. But this was an established festival of the Jewish um, ritual and faith and tradition. And it is that day that the Holy Spirit comes. And there were many people there. That's correct. And I mean, that's why Jerusalem has so many people uh, visiting, if you want to say, or a word that they usually use, pilgrims, because they're from all over the Mediterranean world are in Jerusalem for these holidays. What they often did is they would come to the Jerusalem area for Passover and then stay during those, those, those weeks. There's just a whole bunch of festivals and celebrations. The, the pa- Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, all of those things they would be celebrating. And then Pentecost is kind of the culmination of that, and they go back home. So it's in the midst of that, and of course, as you know, it's not a coincidence that Jesus is crucified on Passover. That's not a coincidence. <laughs> that fulfills the amazing, uh, wonderful 
aspect of Passover in the Jewish celebration. When the lamb is slain, Jesus was slain in the afternoon. Uh, he hangs on the cross for six hours. He dies at the point when normally the Passover lamb would have been slain. I mean, all of that isn't a coincidence in what God is doing. And so that Pentecost is the day uh, that the Holy Spirit comes is also connected with fulfilling Old Testament uh, rituals and practices. They were all gathered together in one place. The all there would be the 120 that we read about in the previous paragraph. Suddenly there came from heaven. Now, again, we talked about this two weeks ago, but notice the similes a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It isn't a mighty rushing wind. It's a sound like that. It filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues. Again, notice as a fire. They weren't fire. It was as simile appeared on them, rested on them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. As I mentioned two weeks ago, that little phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, is a key New Testament phrase. This is not the only time you see it. Because the Greek word filled means to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Because filled, you know, filled's kind of a, oh, that's a nice word. What does that really mean? Because you think of filled like filling a coffee cup. But it's the idea of being under the control of the Holy Spirit. And the miracle that enables them to see the evidence that they're under the control of the Spirit is they're speaking in other tongues. All right, now, we sort of covered that two weeks ago. So we're now where we want to start some fresh material. But we did some review. Are you with me? Any questions about what is going on here um, with Pentecost? Can you remind us again who and how many of these people were here? At this? Yes, this is uh, in Jerusalem. Presumably it's the upper room, which... Uh, was undoubtedly a, a room they rented, a fairly large room. And from the previous paragraph, this would be 120 people. It would be the 11 plus a, a large group of women plus a number of other people that are unnamed. We don't know who they all are. But the total is about the 120 people. Now, it's really, by the way, let me go down a quick bunny trail and, and then I'll come back to it. Luke is really interested in numbers for us. Because what he wants to, to see is the, the growth of these disciples of Jesus in these months after he goes back to the Father. You have the 11, then you have the 120, and then at this paragraph, or as this chapter comes to an end, you're going to see 3,000 more. In a couple of chapters, you're going to see 5,000 more. So within a couple of weeks, 10,000 people are now in Jerusalem following Christ. Now, what did Jesus say? Be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea. Here's the beginning of them fulfilling that. Witnesses of the gospel, of the completed, finished work of Jesus in Jerusalem, and thousands and thousands of Jewish people are responding. This 120, uh, you might call that the core group, <laughs> that is just, it's, it's just quite amazing how it's spreading. And these are Jewish people. And we're going to find out a little more in verses 8 through 11 uh, who they are. Uh, not, that's not the right way to say it. No, more like where are they from. That's a better way to say it. Okay? Any, uh, yeah, Ed. When the Holy Spirit came down with those 120, were they all able to speak tongues in, or was it just the 12 apostles? No, all. 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 Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think we discussed it just briefly less, or the last time we met, was that these all... They all spoke different languages because mm -hmm. they were different areas. That's right. And that when these tongues were written, or when the tongues were spoken, okay. uh, some of them could define exactly what they were saying, and somebody else from another country could understand. That's right. What some what it, one of the other tongues was saying. That's right. That correct? That's correct. That's correct. Now, let's every now and then it's important to do this whether. You know, you want to get all this detail or not, it doesn't matter. But I want to show you something here, and this is kind of important. 
um, I think for us to understand, and Woody was alluding to it, what is really going on. We need to connect the word tongues, which in Greek is glossa, with, and I'm reading from the ESV translation, they translate it language. The word they're translating in verse 6 and verse 8 is dialectos. What English word do we get from that? Dialect. Dialect. That's familiar to you. So what, what we see here is that the tongues, that's why I put an equal sign, the tongues are not just gibberish. And I, that sounds unkind, but I don't know how else to put it. It's just not noises they're making. This is languages. So the tongues equal language. So the glossa is dialectos. Because this is this is the miracle of Pentecost, and Woody just said it. As you'll see in a moment, in verses 8 through 11, you have all of these Jewish, they're called Hellenistic Jews. And I'll explain who they are in a minute. But these are the Jews of the diaspora. Diaspora means spreading out. You know, they had spread out after all the persecutions and exiles and stuff like that. And they come back from all these areas of the Mediterranean world to Jerusalem. And they have dialects, they speak different languages, and so on. So it's this miracle of them hearing the gospel message in their own language as these 120 people are speaking languages they never learned. So, you know, I've said a, a variety of sentences there in summarizing what these words in Greek mean and what really is going on here. So was I successful? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's, um, it's just some, this isn't just gibberish and they're just making a bunch of noises. This is language. They are speaking a language they did not learn, know, or study, but it's the miracle of what God is doing through the Holy Spirit. And as you'll see when Peter will defend what's going on in just a moment, uh, Peter quotes from the Old Testament prophet Joel and say, Joel said this would happen, and this is happening. Joel told us that this would happen when the Holy Spirit came. It just happened. So it's, it's one, of, one of the things that's so wonderful about Peter's sermon that follows um, in, in once we're done summarizing the event here. So, you still tracking with me? Yeah. Okay. Verse 8, I'm sorry, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Now that is important, and Lucas just explained to us. Who, who is hearing this message of the gospel in all these different languages? Devout men of every nation, verse 6. And at this sound, presumably what sound? The, the speaking in tongues, speaking languages. The multitude came together. And they were bewildered. You, you could translate that Greek word confused because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. So, I mean, just try to... I mean, it's really hard for you and me to try to even imagine in our mind what this would have looked like. These, this is thousands and thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem hearing in their own language, their own dialect, the gospel message about Jesus in their own language. And I mean, they're, they're t what, what's going on? They're trying to figure out what is going on. And so bewildered, confused, verse 7, and they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? That's, by the way, that's a, that's pejorative. That's a pejorative question. Uh, do you know what pejorative means? That's an unkind, that's not a compliment. It's like saying, wait a minute, these people are all from Council Bluffs. <laughs> Three people, uh, you're supposed to laugh at that. I mean, that's what people in Omaha say. Well, they're from Council Bluffs. I mean, just the assumption, they're Galileans. They're the uneducated poor people up north. They can't speak all these languages. So it's a pejorative, demeaning, unkind rhetorical question. How is it that each of us is hearing this in his own native language? Again, language is dialectos. Jim, un unlike when we sometimes hear about someone speaking in tongues and it needs to be interpreted, in this case, there was somebody that understood exactly what it said 
and didn't need to have it interpreted, or if that's the correct word. Yeah, well, in, in a way that's true, but they are interpreting it on their own be, because they're hearing it in their in their own language, and that because it is being interpreted in their own language by the various people, some from Crete and all the, it is being interpreted. Uh, I, I'm not sure I want to get into all of this controversy surrounding speaking in tongues. Not as big of an issue as it used to be. Uh, it used to be a really hot issue, but isn't quite as significant anymore. But um, I think the case, I wrote an article on this a long time ago, but I think the case can be made that wherever glossa is used in the New Testament, it's referring to a language. And for it to be edifying, it must be interpreted. Those two things always go together with the gift. And a, a proposition that is always central to New Testament gifts, spiritual gifts, is a gift is given by the Holy Spirit to edify others. It's not for you, not to make you feel good, not to you elevate yourself. It's for edification, for ministering to, building up, encouraging other, other believers. It's not warm fuzzies for you. It's an unkind way to put that, isn't it? Bunny trail, we're back, we're done, we're not going through it anymore. So they're trying to figure out what in the world is going on. Now verse 9 and verse 10 is summarizing what I wrote here. What is Luke doing? He's telling us where all of these Jews are from geographically. They are all products of the diaspora. Now, if you don't know that word, you probably should know that word. That's just one of those words that if you don't have that in your vocabulary, you should probably make sure it gets in your vocabulary. The diaspora refers to the spreading of the Jewish people throughout the world. The, you still today speak of diaspora Jews. Now, what is happening in the 21st century is Jewish people throughout the world are going back to their land, the nation today, the nation state of Israel. But there are still, the, the, the largest concentration of Jews in 2008 is now in Israel. Until 1948, that wasn't true. In 1948, there were hardly any Jews in, 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 uh, in that area. The nation state hadn't exist, but... Once it was founded, Jews have started coming back. They're now the largest concentration of Jews on planet Earth. There are about 18 million Jews on planet Earth in 2018. Close to 8 million of them are in Israel. The second largest concentration of Jews in 2018 is in the United States. It is. I mean, it's uh, to me, it's, it's just one of those... You can say, well, that's just a coincidence, or you can say that's fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 and 37. And if you live in Israel today, they're going to tell you we are the fulfillment of Ezekiel 36 and 37. I used to go there every year, a couple times a year sometimes. And always my friends would say, isn't this wonderful? Ezekiel 36 and 37 is being fulfilled. They're not evangelicals, they're Jews. <laughs> and they're excited because they're seeing what God promised being fulfilled. Now, most people don't in the larger world don't look at that way at all, but they don't know the Bible. So, again, if you want to, I don't think you really want me to, I can talk about where all these areas are, but all Luke is saying is these are all the geographical regions where these people are from because they've been spread out. Now, why are they spread out? Let's just remind ourselves of history. In 722 B.C., the Assyrian Empire conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And the northern kingdom of Israel went out of existence. And that block of Jews, many of them were spread. Then in 586, actually there were three of them, but in 586, the last one, B.C., Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and took a lot of Jews back to Babylon. And then they were spread throughout the world. And under the Greeks, and Alexander the Great, they were conquered, and many of them were spread. And then those of the Roman Empire, they're conquered and they're spread. And so, I mean, they're just all over the Mediterranean world. 
but they come back to Jerusalem for the feast days. And all Luke is saying, Parthians, Medes, the Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome. Verse 11, both Jews and proselytes. Proselytes, they're just transliterating a, a, a word from the Greek language. These are Gentiles who converted to Judaism. You follow me? These aren't Jews, ethnic Jews. These are Gentiles who converted to Judaism. And he tells us these people are from Crete and from Arabia. These are Arabs who had converted to Judaism. So what Luke has done is just summarized all of these different areas throughout the Mediterranean world where these Jews are from. And every one of them, most of them, most of them couldn't speak Hebrew. Most of them could speak Greek because they've been Hellenized. They, they've come under the Greek influence and they had other dialects that they would have known. So the miracle of Pentecost is all of these different Hellenistic Jews and some proselytes from Crete and Arabia are hearing the gospel in their language. Who's speaking? The 120 who are not trained in these languages, didn't go to school to learn these languages. They're filled with the Holy Spirit, under the Holy Spirit's uh, uh, control, and they're speaking the gospel message. And these people are confounded. That's the miracle of Pentecost. Okay? Yeah. Go ahead. So I'm trying to get my brain around. Um, earlier, you could hear about the moon. Um, Joseph and Mary going to Jerusalem, right? Say, say that again, the what? So I'm trying to get my brain around the whole coming to Jerusalem yes. and, and what was going on for, for the different festivals. That's right. Um, and, and the only thing I get my brain around is uh, the journey to Mecca for Muslims. Um, it's somewhat similar. Once, once in their lifetime, right? So is this something that every Jew in Israel would, they would all go to Jerusalem? Was it That's a good question. Sometimes was it, uh, how, how did that work? That's a good question. Uh, obviously, not all did. I mean, that just realistically. Um for a lot of reasons. One, just very pragmatic. It's, it's very, very expensive right. and very time-consuming for them to go to Jerusalem and stay from you know, before Passover on through Pentecost. They're, they're going to they're gonna be there for weeks, which means they've got to stay somewhere, they've got to eat, you know, and plus they're buying sacrifices. I mean, it's just, it, it, was, it was a very, very costly thing for them to do. Generally speaking, now these are these are broad stroke statements, and it's impossible to get numbers on this. We just don't know. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of the first century, says to us in one of his histories that during this period, over a million people were in the region around Jerusalem. I mean, you know, in Jerusalem, but also because Jerusalem is very small. You get about 30,000 people could live in Jerusalem. But it's just outside, all of those communities and hills and all that stuff. So, you know, for the most part, Josephus is fairly reliable. So that's probably not an unreasonable number. Most historians think it's probably closer to 600,000. But still, that's an astonishing number. So the other aspect of that is probably most of these people that are here are people of some means, merchants, merchants. people who could afford, or, as you were intimating, it often was the goal of a Jew at least once in their lifetime to go to Jerusalem. Many wanted to do it and did it several times during their lifetime. But it was costly and very difficult for them to do that. So, I mean, that's all I can say. And and now you you made the uh, analogy to Islam, and that is correct. The Quran challenges every Muslim to make a journey to uh, uh, Mecca in what is called the Hajj at least once in their lifetime. 
and the many wealthy Muslims go in the Hajj every year, but it is the goal of every Muslim at least one. The Quran even says it is possible to go posthumously. In other words, your relatives take your bones, which is that raises a whole bunch of other issues. But anyway, uh, so it, it was very important ritual, very important celebration because of how important Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Pentecost, how important they were. They were, not, they were very patriotic holidays. Those, these, these weeks defined who you were as a Jew, much more than uh, Sukkot and some of the other celebrations. This defined who you were. This, this, was, the, this was the July 4th of Judaism. I mean, it really was. This was the most important. This, this is it. This defined who we are because it celebrates their liberation from Egypt and their birth as a nation. It's the July 4th of Judaism. All right. So, do you have, a, you have your arms around this idea here? These are Hellenistic Jews of the diaspora. These are, you know, tens of thousands of them, presumably. Continuing at the end of verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues, Glosa, the mighty works of God. And they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, now there are two responses, two conclusions. What does this mean? I mean, that's, what does this mean? That this miracle is occurring. What does this mean? And then secondly, but others mocking said, oh, I know what's going on. They're drunk. They're filled with new wine. So you have two responses. Something's going on. This is a miracle. What is it? Now, oh, we know they're drunk. So you have two responses, one serious, one cynical. So Peter stands up, starting in verse 14, probably Peter's greatest sermon. There are a couple recorded for us in the book of Acts, but this is probably Peter's greatest sermon. All right? Now, it's 20 minutes after 12. There is no way we're going to finish this sermon. But we're going to get started. So if you miss next week, God will be very displeased if you miss it. I'm just kidding, but try not to miss next week. So, but Peter, standing with the eleven, now you know what that means, lifted up his voice and addressed them. He wants to explain what's happened. He wants to answer the two questions that were posed in verse 12 and that cynical, rhetorical, they're drunk. None of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known and give ears to my words. For these people, verse 13, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. Since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Third hour of the day means 9 a.m. Now, verse 16 is very, very important. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. Now, little phrase, ESV translates it, this is what? It, it's in, in Hebrew, it's a pesher exclamation. You could translate, this is that. And this, what you've just seen, is that. What Joel said would happen. So what Peter is doing, he's using a Hebrew phrase that Orthodox Jews would be really familiar with that. They would say, this is that. You want to understand what's going on? This is that. Which the prophet Joel spoke about. And so what he does is he quotes in verse 17 and verse 18, and then through verse 20. Now I'm going to break them into two parts. Verse 17 and 18 through verse 20. He's quoting Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Now, uh, I doubt, you know, I, I don't know a lot of you and your background, but I doubt that many of you have spent a lot of time studying the minor prophets. Maybe you have. But Joel is one of the premier minor prophets because Joel prophesies specifically about the Holy Spirit. 
Joel 2, chapter 2, 28 through 32. So he is quoting from this. This is that. This, what you see, is that, what Joel talked about. So connect the two, he's saying. Now, verse 17 and verse 18 focuses on what just happened. Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19 and 20 focuses on the coming day of the Lord. So as Peter is speaking this, 17 and 18 focuses on the present. 19 and 20 focuses on the future. Now, what I just said in those last two sentences, that make sense? So what, what Peter's going to do is he wants to explain what just happened. But masterfully, he explains it by saying this fulfills what Joel prophesied. But it has a present-day connection from their perspective, present-day, A.D. 33. But it also has a future connection. So the present is verse 17 and 18. The future is 19 and 20. All right, now, you still with me? Mm-hmm. Okay, three of you are. In the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons, your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Old men shall dream dreams. My male servants, even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Now, let's make, I read the whole part of of Joel 2, and I'll save 19 and 20 more than likely for next week, uh, because there's a lot I want to say about these two verses. Now, I want you to observe several things. In verse 17, and at the end of verse 18, you see the same phrase, I will pour out my spirit. You have it twice. I will pour out my spirit. Now, you're a Jew. You're a Jew in A.D. 33. All that has just happened with Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, and so on. You heard this story, whether you believed it or not, you've heard this story. But when Peter quotes Joel, I will pour out my spirit, immediately, they're thinking new covenant. Immediately, they're thinking the new order. Because this is the beginning, this is the birth, this is the inauguration of the whole new order that God promised to Israel. In the midst of their exile. In the midst of the low point of their history. When they're in Babylon, this stuff's prophesied. going to cause them to really listen. That's why, as you'll see at the end of this chapter, 3,000 of them put their faith in Jesus Christ, because they understand what Peter's saying here. So, that, that phrase, I will pour out my spirit, twice in these two verses, is loaded with new covenant, the new order language. Oh, yes. But notice something else. On all flesh, not just Jews. The new covenant is for everybody. What does Acts 1.8 say? Start in Jerusalem and go to Judea. That's Jewish territory. Samaria, that's not Jewish territory. Uttermost parts of the earth, that's not Jewish territory. You follow me? The new covenant is not just for the Jews. It's for everybody. And that's why the church is made up of Jew and Gentile, equal in the new covenant blessings, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. So this, this is amazing what Peter is doing. And then notice this language. Sons, daughters, young men, old men, male servants, female spirits, female servants. It's for all genders, all ages, all social groups. 
Ephesians 2, 11 through 12. Yeah, yes. Uh, well, the Jew and Gentile equal in New Covenant blessings, Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. But as you read in verse 17, on your daughters, on your sons, on your daughters, your young men, your old men, your male servants, your female servants. Why is he doing that? Why is Joel saying that? Why is Peter quoting that? Because the new covenant, the new covenant of blessings are for everybody. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter your age. And it doesn't matter your social class. You see that? You're supposed to be excited about yeah. this. I mean, you, you, I mean it, it, it's, it's remarkable. It knows no, all the boundaries humans have set up to distinguish between the various types of humans. In terms of God and his new covenant blessings and the coming Holy Spirit, those barriers are relevant. Because the gospel and the new covenant blessings are for everybody. That's why at Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, in Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, um, uh, slave or free. I mean, he, there aren't all social, gender, class, age, all of the categories that we group human beings in terms of the gospel and new covenant blessings are irrelevant because at the foot of the cross, everybody's equal. So, it, I mean... For you, you and I live in the United States, where we're right, we're used to hearing people talk about equality. All men are created equal, endowed by the Creator. Certainly, inalienable rights among those are life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. I just quoted from the Declaration of Independence, the First Amendment to the Constitution. I mean, all of, we're used to those things. In the ancient world, they weren't used to hearing that kind of stuff. Listen to me. The great leveler in the ancient world was the church. Now, I, you know, I, I wish you could say that everything was perfect. It wasn't. But the great leveler of the, of, of the Greco-Roman world was the church. Because you had these house church situations, and Paul talks about it, and a lot of the, a lot of the early fathers of the early 100s talk about this. The Didache talks about this. You had these house churches where very wealthy, aristocratic Roman people and very wealthy Roman soldiers sitting in a house church with slaves and women all worshiping the Lord together. You will not see anything like that in any social institution in any other part of the Greco-Roman world except the church. And so all, and, and I think this is why Peter is doing this, Joel is making it clear that the new covenant blessings, this is that. What you just saw is that. It's for everybody. And that's why it's important. All of you people from the Mediterranean world, even you proselytes, you Arabs and Cretes who are Gentiles who converted to Judaism, you're hearing the gospel message about Jesus in your own tongue. This is evidence of what Joel prophesied would happen is being fulfilled. Reach this conclusion. The new order has begun. That's why thousands and thousands of them respond. Because they knew Joel. They knew this was one of the great promises. They were longing for this to happen. And Peter just said, it just happened. All right? I was doing a lot of preaching there, not teaching, but I was getting animated and excited. And so I'm not sure you all were sharing the same level of excitement I was. Any questions about what Joel did here in quoting from Joel 2? So this is absolutely exciting because, I mean, it's defined Western Europe and governments, and you, know, you can have a woman prime minister, a <laughs> doctor, and, you know, a woman taxi cab driver. So my question is, when did it go, like, within the Muslim community, why, why is there such a class society there, and when did that begin, and it's so embraced? Well, it was part of Muhammad's teaching in the 600s, right out of the chute. Highly structured very patriarchal. Women are, uh, I mean, I don't know how else to put this, but it's, it's, it, is, it is true. Women are regarded as substandard human beings. And therefore, um, I 
I'm trying to choose words here that don't sound so uh, incendiary and unkind. Spiritual equality is not a core value of Islam. Just like spiritual equality is not a core value of Hinduism. Hinduism fostered the caste system. Now, they have been struggling since they became independent from the British Empire in the, after World War II, under Gandhi and all that stuff. You probably know a little bit about that. To do away with the caste system. It's illegal to, implement the, to still implement the caste system in India, but it's still there, you know, because it's rooted in centuries and centuries and centuries, millennia. Um, Buddhism very much has a structured level of spiritual, because your goal is to reach spiritual enlightenment, to be like Buddha, you know, and all that stuff. So, but, and this is hard because we haven't always lived it very well. But what genuine biblical Christianity teaches, spiritually speaking, is absolute spiritual equality. And that's why through history, the church has been the engine driving social change. Generally. I mean, it really has. Uh, and I mean, you know some of those stories. And that's why it's, um, it's important for you and me to always see people the way God sees people. So let's look at verse 19 and 20. What Peter does now in quoting from Joel. Could, could I ask a question? Yeah. What, 17 and 18. Uh, right. This, this, this opens a new order. Uh, and you say people were looking forward to that. But the old order was for Jews only, men only. Uh, no, 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 not necessarily. Um, even as we read earlier, when he had listing all of those people, you saw proselytes from Crete and Arabia. These were Gentiles who had come into Judaism. We have in the Old Testament many, many Gentiles that embraced Judaism. And, and remind you of one more thing. In Genesis twelve three. When Abraham receives that promise from God, among the three promises, Abraham and you, all the nations, will be blessed. Judaism is to bless the world with the truth of who God is. Whether they fulfilled that or not, it's, it's evident they didn't. And it really would be, um, it really would be inaccurate. I think you stated it that it was for men only. It, it wasn't for men only. I mean, you look at, uh, in the Old Testament, like Ruth and, and a number of those other very important women that played a very strategic role. Unfortunately, um, with the Pharisees and others, it became very rigidly patriarchal. But again, and Luke has done this, you're going to really see it in the book of Acts. Luke keeps stressing the role of women, the important role that women played in the early church. And even in among the 120, we saw that earlier um, when we were in chapter one. Mm -hmm. So, the, um, how? Let me ask you. This is a bunny trail question, but it's an important question. How long does it take to break down the old prejudices and old hierarchies and old assumptions? It hasn't happened. I mean, it, it takes it takes a long time. It slowly changes, but in many ways, I mean, you go to the Middle East today, and not so much in Israel, a very progressive modern democracy, but you get outside of that. <laughs> the Bedouins that live in Israel, the Bedouins, they're still living like 3,000 years ago. <laughs> they're nomadic, tribal, very patriarchal. It's just exactly the way it was 3,000 years ago. They're still living it. Um, and the gospel will penetrate these societies, and it takes generations <coughs> to break down all those traditions and all those practices. But it does break them down, if you let it, if you want it to. 
Verse 19 and 20. What time is it? I told you we'd never finish this. Verse 19 and 20, quoting from Joel, now focuses on the future. Verses 19 and 20 is day of the Lord language. And you see it at the end of verse 20, before the day of the Lord comes. Now, several of you have been in this class for a couple of years and there have been a variety of things we've studied. We studied the Thessalonian letters last year, I think it was, or maybe 18 months ago. Is the day of the Lord phrase, do you, are you reminded of that? Does that sound familiar? Jim shaking his head yes. Woody shaking his head yes. The rest of you are playing living statues. You don't want to move. Um, the day of the Lord is a very important phrase throughout the Bible. It focuses on God intervening in human history for judgment and for blessing. So when Joel, and now Peter's quoting it, when Joel is quoting 19 and 20 from, when Peter's quoting Joel in verses 19, he's focusing on the day of the Lord, using day of the Lord language. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, that great magnificent day. And so you're thinking, oh, good night. Why, Joel, why is Joel quoting that? Why is... Joel bringing this up, and why is Peter bringing this up? Peter could have ended, in verse 18, he could have ended his quotation from Joel, and everybody would have gotten it. But he adds something that reminds us. The new order, the new covenant, will last until the second coming of Jesus Christ, which throughout the Bible is always referred to, now I'm going to use a word that I think you all know, is the epitome of the day of the Lord. The epitome of God breaking into history for judgment followed by blessing. And so the words and phrases he uses... Wonders in the heavens, signs on the earth, blood, fire, vapor, smoke, sun turned to darkness, moon to blood. What does that sound like? Sounds like the book of Revelation, doesn't it? Sounds like the, 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 the seal judgments and the, and, and the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments. It sounds like Matthew 24 when the disciples asked Jesus the question, what's the sign of the end of the age? What's the sign of your coming? And Jesus answers the correct question, a sign of the end of the age first. And he talks about these things. So wonders in heaven, signs in the earth, blood, fire, vapor, smoke, sun turned. That's exactly the stuff Jesus talks about. So Peter is reminding them, the day, the, the new order, the new covenant lasts until the return of Jesus Christ. The day of the Lord, which Jesus reminded us of involves all of these cosmic activities that are an indication that God is bringing history to an end which will culminate in the return of his son. So verse 17 through 20, quoting from Joel chapter 2, is a summary, it's amazing, it's a summary of the rest of God's plan. The beginning of the new order the sign of the Holy Spirit, which has now come, and the end, all wrapped around the return of his son, the day of the Lord. And the language of 19 and 20 is all day of the Lord language. That is all over the Bible, all over the prophecies of the Bible, and including Revelation. Are you still with me? So I think I understand why Peter quoting from Joel. He wants to remind them God has a plan. He's working that plan. Another stage in the fulfillment of his plan has come, the Holy Spirit, the beginning of the new order. But this will come to an end all wrapped around the day of the Lord, the return of his son. 
which again is sort of exciting. So how do I get ready for that? Verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How do I prepare for the day of the Lord? Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Amen. So Peter has given this brief panorama of history using the prophet Joel to reach this conclusion. How do I get ready? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And by the way, it's really interesting that Peter puts it this way. Because Lord, Koryas, is Yahweh in the Old Testament. And who's the Lord Yahweh? It's Jesus. Everyone who calls upon Jesus shall be saved. That's just really, 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 really fascinating. I wanted to get a little farther, further in our discussion. I was amazed we got through verse 20. I don't know if you're with me. But do you think you have a pretty good idea of why he's quoting Joel and what he's doing? Tomorrow what I want to do is, because in verse 22, he brings all of this now to Jesus. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a phenomenal summary of what just happened in Jerusalem a few weeks earlier. Remember, this is still AD 33, still the spring. And so he's going to say what just happened a few weeks earlier. So it's good. All right, I'm going to pray, and then I don't know how we're going to get out of here, but I was told I could give my badge to Andrew, and he'll take care of it because I've got to go. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for a, a good a good message of, of Peter focusing on explaining what happened in the miracle of Pentecost and such an amazing fulfillment of the very specific prophecies of Joel 2 and a reminder, too, that this age is going to come to an end with the day of the Lord, which is all wrapped around Jesus and his return. And that's what Peter's going to transition to for next week. I pray that um, we've gone through some difficult material. Some of it was complicated. I hope everyone has followed and is with me. Lord, forgive me for bringing up that political thing. I shouldn't have done that. I pray that you'll help us instead to focus on what is really important about this section of Acts chapter 2. We covet your blessing. We, we covet your presence with us. And as we go our separate ways, we want to be dismissed with your blessing. And Lord, we want to represent you well. We ask for your enablement to do that. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.